0: Hi, welcome to season seven of Build, OpenView's podcast on scaling companies and all things product-led growth. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and help them grow into large and enduring businesses. For those of you who are new to Build, each season is dedicated to a specific theme. This season we're coming back to a topic we become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. A product-led growth strategy equates to putting product at the center of customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. As we look at the most successful software companies, whether in the public markets, in or outside of our private portfolio, we see an increasing number of the most successful businesses being driven by this strategy. We're confident that future generations of leading software companies will go to market through product-led growth. We have a lineup of leaders from incredible PLG companies. You'll hear about the design principles they've used to build their products and businesses, advice they would give to their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. For Wade Foster, co-founder and CEO of Zapier, the customer always comes first. On this episode, we chat about what their early customers looked like, how collecting data, even when they didn't have the manpower to analyze it, helped them over the long run, and how they've managed to get to scale while maintaining such a capital-efficient growth trajectory. Wade, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Build. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Zapier, could you just tell folks a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, sure. Zapier helps you connect all the tools you might use inside your business. It's most commonly used to help, you know, small businesses help scale their business, help it be more efficient by connecting things like MailChimp and Salesforce and QuickBooks and PayPal and Slack and Trello and all these tools that you have together. You know, I think we support 1500 apps today. So if you're using something, odds are we probably support it and you can connect and automate
0: all sorts of, you know, business workflows you might have. It's incredible and it's incredible for me to see what you've built. I think it's oh it's 7 years since we first spoke. It was a former life when I was at Bessemer and had the opportunity to start working with you then and you know learn a lot about how and why you decided to tackle this problem and build this company. But I think everyone would love to hear a little bit about just that.
1: Yeah, you know, at the time, my day job, I was working at this company, Veterans United, in marketing automation. And so we were using Marketo to run all of our marketing automation tools. And I was struggling a little bit with the API. I'm not a particularly great engineer myself. And so having all the problems there. And then in the evenings, I was doing a lot of freelancing, just, you know, trying to make a buck on the Internet type of things. And, you know, using a lot of tools, you know, that were common at the time, WordPress, MailChimp, Wufu, stuff like that. And one of the things my co-founder Brian and I noticed was if you would go to the forums of all these services, you would see people asking for integrations for all variety of tools. And these threads in the forums would be pretty lengthy and oftentimes pretty old, you know, months, years old. And that kind of gave us a hint that like, wow, people really want to be able to connect tools, they want to get their toolkit to work better together. And also the companies behind these products weren't really prioritizing integration because of how old these threads were. And so Brian kind of had this insight where he's like, you know, I bet if we built something that made it really easy to sort of plug in an app and make it automatically work with all the other apps that are already on the platform. So kind of have this trigger action model going on that it could be, Pretty useful, and so that's where we started. Was based on these little forum posts we saw scattered across, you know, I don't know, a dozen different tools on the internet.
0: When I first came across uh, really early version, you know, the product, what had struck me, and I think this is, you know, certainly not novel in 2019, but you know, that many years ago, looking at the pendulum swinging from you know software suites to individual best of breed SaaS, and the lack of easy interoperability, let alone the ability to lay over logic. Mm -hmm. Right. And improve people's working lives, you know, jumped off the page. And it's incredible what you've been able to achieve so far. I mean, as you think about those design principles, right, for not necessarily the product, which we'll get to, but for the business as a whole, right? The things that you believe in and guide you as you build, what are those? Right? What are those key tenets?
1: I think the most important thing is your customer. It's who you serve. That has to be at the forefront of any business because that's the lifeblood of what your business is. And so we made that a sort of core tenet from the very get-go. I don't know, the first dozen or so customers we had, I handheld, you know, set them up with their first Zaps and got them running on the platform. When we started hiring, we made all hands support a core tenet of what we did. So everyone in the company spent time doing customer service. You know, just making sure that everyone in the company has that appreciation of, Who you're serving is so, so important. You know, I think in Silicon Valley, we can get it turned upside down at times where we sort of, you know, focus on your investors or the ecosystem or your peers as who you're trying to please. We've never sort of lost sight on who it is that we're here for.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense, and it's really impressive that you've built right that all-hand support from day one in the early days into the culture and into the operations. How have you seen ways in which maybe across the organization and types of roles that you know might not typically either be on the front lines with customers or be interacting with customers in that helpful way really affect the business, right?
1: Sure. I mean, you think of your ops roles like your accountants or your recruiters, folks like that. Not typically, you know, on the front lines working with customers, but I think even those roles can benefit from it. You know, your recruiters understand who the customers are, what makes the business tick. And so now when they're trying to bring talent into the org, they can actually speak to real examples of what it's like to work here. They can speak to real things that are going on inside of the company because they've actually experienced it, they've lived it. And so, Having that perspective of who your customers are, I think, can be beneficial no matter what your role is. You might think you're sort of divorced from the customer or not as close to the customer, but the reality is, again, we're all here for a reason. It's to serve that customer. And so it's important for you to
0: understand how your role connects to what the customer needs. And who were those early customers that you were serving and that you were creating value for initially? What did they look like? What were their challenges?
1: Yeah, a lot of them were, you know, small businesses, they were pretty technically forward companies that were using tools like Shopify to run their business. You think about, you know, those sort of solopreneurs or entrepreneurs who are like, Oh, I can probably sell some t shirts on Shopify, like, okay, I'll spin that up, or I can make a site on WordPress and sell like an online course, those sort of early sort of internet entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out how do I patch some of these tools together to sell a you know maybe a physical good or maybe a digital good or something like that were some of our earliest customers because while they weren't engineers they were sort of technically forward thinkers and able to sort of adopt these early SaaS companies products and use them off the shelf and then they needed ways to connect them together and so Zapier was an obvious extension of that
0: That's great. You know, we talk about this idea of the customer but you know increasingly as we look more into and you know are a part of developing businesses that are product led and are marketing led there's you know an increasing bifurcation between the idea of the user as a customer and also the buyer sometimes mm-hmm. in an organization and how that changes and so how do you think about those two roles whether they're in the same individual or in different individuals and how you add value and frankly create a great experience for one or both
1: Especially where Zapier started, we benefited from the fact that our user was our buyer. You know, when you're selling into small businesses, in our case, many times very small businesses and oftentimes into the business owner who was also the user of the product, that simplicity really helps a new company out because you don't have the complexities of serving multiple different types of people. In our case, out the gate, it was one type of person. Now, as we've grown, you know, that has changed a little bit. But from the very get-go, it was like the person we're talking to who's using the product is also the one who's putting their credit card in. And so it was very clear who we should be listening to. It should be that person. So that helped us out a ton from a product development perspective because we knew that if we could take care of the product and make it better for them, that a credit card was attached to that person as well too. So I think that simplicity was really, really easy. You know, as you grow and you serve bigger and bigger businesses, it gets a little more tricky. You start to see usage sort of snowball across a couple different people and things like that. It gets sort of integrated into key workflows. And then all of a sudden you got to figure out, okay, where do I put the monetization clip? And then when that happens, hopefully your product has become so useful that Whoever the buyer is, the end users are able to make an effective case to them. It's like, hey, we got to upgrade to this tool because if we don't, these key business workflows are going to fail. So that's what the motion sort of evolves to as your customer becomes more dynamic, you know, and your user gets separated from your customer a little bit. That motion has to evolve at some point in time in the lifetime of your business.
0: You make a really good point, right? Which is sort of this delicate balance between. Obviously, providing value well before you capture it and making sure, in this case, right, that the workflows or that the product itself is embedded. And in some sense, right, it's just a part of the way that that business works before necessarily looking to capture some of that value. How do you find the balance and how have you found the balance over time of where to start entering those conversations, whether directly or within the product to put up opportunities that are perhaps, you know, paid opportunities?
1: You know, I think a bunch of it's kind of just like a little bit of a guessing game. You know, you're using your instincts, especially out of the gate. When you're a very young company, you don't have a lot of data to go on. So you're mostly just using your own product intuition, your own experience as a buyer. You're listening to your customers and saying like, okay, you know, I think at this point in time, if I'm doing these types of things with the product, you know, value has been proven out. And so maybe we put a pricing lever here, you know, maybe we say that. You only get X number of widgets or Y number of, you know, digits or whatever. And you put the pricing lever there. So a lot of it's just kind of based on your initial instincts. And then you just see what happens. Like, do people convert or do they not? And if they're not, why is that? You know, and I think you can pay a lot of attention to other SaaS companies and see what they're doing and kind of get a feel for like, okay, here are the price points for different types of customers or different types of buyers. And just sort of get an instinct on, you know, how does your product fit into that? So a lot of it, you know, when you're just getting started is instincts, because you're just not going to have that much user data to go off of. And so you're using that instinct to give you a starting point. And then as you get more and more data, hopefully you're able to adjust it to find a model that works really well, that helps you scale.
0: And that's a very natural transition as you scale, moving from intuition and instinct to data driven either iteration or experimentation. You know, when in Zapier's lifecycle did you start making that transition and how have you incorporated sort of data driven decision making either from the product or from other sources into what you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've always tried to use the data that we have at hand, but at a certain point, you have to just draw a line and say, okay, we got to go. You know, since we're talking about pricing a little bit, we can use pricing as a good example of this. You know, I remember when we were first trying to set our initial pricing, Brian, Mike, and I were still working on Zapier as a side project. So it was all happening in the evenings. And we were up at like, I don't know, 1am one time, just arguing back and forth around What should the price point be? And it was comical to look back on it because, you know, three inexperienced founders who had never scaled anything of any sort were all saying, like, well, here's what I think it should be. Or I read a blog post that said this. And well, I read a different blog post that said that. And so, you know, it's kind of the blind leading the blind. And eventually we just kind of had this moment where we stepped outside and we're like, this is ridiculous. None of us know what we're talking about. We just need to do something and so our initial pricing became the Fibonacci sequence so our first plan was eleven dollars our second one was twenty three and our third one was fifty eight dollars as a sort of nod to how comical our attempts to perfectly price the product out the gate were and that lived as the initial pricing for the product for I think maybe the first you know nine months or so until we had like some initial you know usage metrics and subscription data to go off of, and then we sort of tweaked it from there. So it took us, you know, maybe nine months before we had enough data to make our first pricing adjustment. You know, we made pricing adjustments every year, every other year since then to try and just improve upon how we, you know, deliver value to our customers, and then how we sort of get paid accordingly for that value.
0: That's a great point and a memorable story. I have to ask, which one of you put the Fibonacci sequence on the table?
1: I actually have no clue, which just goes to show like how comical the argument was at the time. Like we just didn't know. It just speaks to our sort of nerd backgrounds as well to like do something like the Fibonacci sequences the pricing. No one would ever say like well, it should be 11, 23 and 58. like that's just so atypical of what you would normally do, but that's where we started
0: and it worked out for us. It did, and one of the other things that you know I observed in the early days working out really well was almost this combinatorial opportunity to tell the story and to tell value, Mm -hmm. right? Given just the nature of the product and bringing different sort of other products together initially pairwise and then in multi-step, it'd be great to learn a little bit of how you came to that sort of opportunity realization and how you leaned into it over time.
1: Yeah, I think the thing we realized pretty early on was that. It was going to be pretty hard for us, and it still is hard for us to talk about just what is Zapier. What's the one-sentence thing about what this tool is? And it's like, well, it's this thing that connects apps, it helps you be more productive, it automates stuff for you. But as a listener to that pitch, you're kind of like, yeah, but I still don't actually know what it is. And so the best way we always could tell the story was to say, well, what's a use case? It's like, well, I use MailChimp and WooFo. It's like, okay, well, if you have a woofu form on your site, when someone fills out the form, you might want to add their contact information into your email marketing so you could you know, send newsletters to them or something like that. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, I definitely would like to use something like that. So the use case was always the value piece. It wasn't the service itself, the platform itself. It was what's the uses for it. And so the way we approached it was through you know basically content marketing where we said okay let's make sure that we have landing pages for all the different types of use cases that we support and then as we get more and more customers using those use cases let's make case studies and write blog posts and things like that that further sort of go into that use case specific thing so that when people are searching for use cases in Google, our sort of pages are coming up on the site. So it was really approach saying like, you know, most people aren't going to discover this product through our homepage, they're going to come in through
0: use case pages. And so we really put those focus on use cases early on. It makes a huge amount of sense when you've got you know, something that's a core platform, but the value to each individual user or organization you know, may be fundamentally different, leading with what they care about versus totally. maybe leading with a theory. It rings true. One thing that you know, many may not know is how efficiently you've built this business. And so would love to maybe hear a little bit about what your philosophy has been with respect to resources and your engagement with the investment community overall.
1: You know, we started the business in Columbia, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri, you don't have, you know, huge VC ecosystem, investor community, things like that. And, you know, Veterans United, the company we'd all been working at was a bootstrap company owned by two brothers, 50-50, and they'd scaled that thing up to 1,000 plus employees, bringing in billions in loans every year at this point in time. An incredible business with never raising a dime. So that was like our exposure to how you build companies it was, well, you make a thing that people want, and then you sell it for a fair price. So that was our exposure and our sort of inclination out the gate. So when we started, it was always about how do we build something that, you know, people love, and then let's sell it for a fair price. And then it's all about distribution. How do you get it out into the hands of folks in a scalable and efficient way? And that comes back to our sort of use cases and search strategy there that was super scalable was, you know, very cost efficient way to acquire customers. And I think if you look at many of the capital efficient businesses, they tend to have, you know, really strong network effects. They tend to have like referrals be really strong, or they tend to have search really strongly at the forefront of their business because those are very, very efficient ways to scale. Versus when you look at a lot of the, you know, businesses that are very capital intensive, they either have Things like really heavy sales models, or they have really heavy like capital requirements because of either labor or equipment or things like that. And so, our business from the get go didn't have those. We didn't have the capital requirements. We didn't have the labor needs. We didn't have the sales overhead that many companies needed. And so, we just sort of said, We're only going to raise money when our business says that it needs to have that money. And, you know, we did the small seed round in 2012 with Bessemer and Co. But since then, you know, the business hasn't needed more capital to grow at a pretty sustainable and healthy clip. That's always kind of been our take on it, is take money when it sort of helps you finance a thing that you need. And we haven't needed that to finance the business.
0: Yeah, it's an incredible story there. And I'm ever thankful that you know back in the day, you took my call at Bessemer. I think you're still in Missouri. I think we were at that point in time, yeah. Gosh, it was a long time ago. As you think about the mechanisms for scale there, right, talking about advantaged and certainly capital efficient distribution mechanisms, right? I mean, search and content was incredible and continues to be incredible for you. But as you think about investments you've made into the product directly that influenced the growth, either in new customer acquisition or within existing customers, Mm -hmm. would love to get a sense of what that has been for you.
1: Yeah, I think the things you know, that have been most important for us are things that really filled the gap. You know, there's always the things in your product that fill like little feature gaps that you just don't anticipate out the gate. So you look at things like our built-in Zapier apps, things like Formatter, our email parser, our delay steps, our multi-steps, code steps, things like this give our customers a lot of utility features. It's kind of like formulas in Excel. You know, you don't need to use Excel with formulas, but boy, if you learn how to use formulas in Excel, it becomes so much more powerful. So those built-in features are really popular and, you know, help fill gaps for a lot of use cases for a lot, a lot of customers. So there's stuff like that that we've invested in. Things like our developer platform have been really key. You know, that allows our partner ecosystem, which is now over 1,500 to build the integrations into Zapier. And so we haven't had to build out all 1,500 ourselves. And instead, the library of apps on Zapier has predominantly been built out by the ecosystem. Investing in stuff like that, that allows your customers to just do more and allows you to sort of grow out the set of use cases more efficiently has been really, really a focus of where most of our investment has gone historically into the product.
0: That's great. And, you know, it obviously sounds like a lot of that has been able to allow users and to allow partners to discover, but also to add this value themselves, right? And Mm -hmm. to do it directly for them, for their orgs, but also to give back into the platform.
1: Totally. That extensibility is so key. I think you look at some of the biggest companies in SaaS today, you look at like a company like Salesforce or a company like Shopify or a company like Slack a big part of their success is their extensibility. It's that users can take the product and, you know, tweak it and adapt it to their needs. And so companies that sort of win that extensibility battle create big ecosystems that are hard to compete with.
0: Absolutely. One thing you mentioned earlier that really stood out to me was, you know, this focus on the customer Right. And in really on customer success throughout their journey, before they're using, you know, Zapier when they're beginning to use it and when it's become a core part, you know, of their business and workflow. And as we look at businesses like the ones you mentioned, Shopify or Slack or other product led leaders like Zoom or Datadog, one of the, you know, critical things that we see is that there's two others that have stood out to us. You know, one is really delivering value before you capture it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and also building systems of experimentation in and around the product and process to drive quick feedback and team to scale and so curious if you know one or both of those other ideas resonates with you and if so if it's had a meaningful effect on how you've built the company to date
1: yeah i mean the capturing value thing has been critical you know if you call back to our pricing experiments with the fibonacci sequence you'll notice that we didn't have a free plan out the gate. And so one of the things we made an adjustment pretty quickly on was to add the freemium side of things. And I think for a lot of product-led companies, you do need a free trial or some sort of mechanism where the time to value, where it's very quick to go from trying this product to seeing value in this product, then to ultimately paying for the product. And so having a free plan for us was really helpful because the type of product we were selling was kind of new to the market. Not a lot of people used a product like Zapier. And so we needed a free plan to help educate the customer base on here's the types of things you can do and to really reduce the friction for getting in and just messing around and playing with a product like ours. And then as we've grown, we've gotten a lot better at systems of experimentation. I think this is one that's going to be a really important part of our future as well, too. I think There's a lot left we can do to improve on this side of things. The system of experimentation is a hard one to invest in, though, until you have a certain amount of scale. You know, it's hard to run A-B tests when you don't have a lot of customers, when you don't have a lot of traffic. And those things start to become really critical, though, when you get larger and larger. But even still, investing in experimentation is an expensive thing to do. So you have to choose your experiments wisely, or you have to get really good at spinning up and spinning down experiments. And that's a pretty substantial investment, you know. Many startups would probably benefit from having a stronger point of view on what things should look like, rather than you know having really sophisticated experimentation things. At least in the early days, at a certain point, that experimentation framework going to be really critical, though.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it comes as you said with scale. Yep. both the infrastructure to actually be able to dedicate resources to the process of doing it, doing it right, but also have enough access to the data in your own platform and in your ecosystem to make those experiments meaningful.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that we did that was pretty smart early on was we tried to make sure that we had events on tons of little things that were happening in our products so that we were tracking a lot of those different elements. Even though we couldn't properly analyze them yet, we were still collecting a lot of that data. So when we started to make investments in our experimentation frameworks, You know, we're bringing in data scientists and analysts. They were able to utilize historical data. They didn't have to, you know, set up event tracking and say, okay, well, from here on out, we're going to start measuring. They were able to look into the past. So I think if you're going to do one thing early on, I think it's logging.
0: Just get really good at logging. Yeah, and on that, what did you do for logging, right? I mean, these days, there's an increasing number of software platforms, whether pointed at the product layer, like Appendo or Amplitude, or more deeply, certainly, kind of in a software stack Mm -hmm. to help folks do that. But as you were building, there wasn't quite the ecosystem around those ideas. (laughs) How did you put that together from the beginning?
1: A lot of it was just throwing stuff into a, a Redshift instance, honestly.
0: It's the right thing to do. And I'm sure the foresight there has paid off. Yep. One other thing that struck me about how you've built the company is how you thought about geography Mm -hmm. geography of employees and the practices to make Zapier successful. So, would love to hear a little bit about how that philosophy developed Mm -hmm. and what the practices are today.
1: Yeah. So, Zapier is a fully distributed company, we don't have an office. You know, it wasn't like a sort of strategic choice at the beginning. Though, again, like we are probably more naturally inclined to do it this way than maybe most companies. I remember, you know, Zapier started as a side project. Side projects don't have offices. We got used to working via chat and GitHub and other online tools. Then when we started to hire folks, we'd moved out to the Bay Area for YC. But Mike, one of my co-founders, had moved back to Missouri for a brief time to be with his then girlfriend, now wife, as she was wrapping up law school. So it's like, okay, well, we're kind of back to like a semi-distributed thing where, you know, a couple founders in California, one in Missouri. And we started to think about hiring our first employee. And we asked around for some advice on how to think about hiring. I never hired an employee. I'd never been a manager before, like didn't know how to run a hiring process, anything like that. And so some advice was like, well, work with former colleagues, work with folks where you already have a rapport built with them. And that'll de-risk the hiring process for you because you don't have to learn that thing quite yet. You can just go work with people that you trust out the gate. And all the people we trusted were back in the Midwest. Like we didn't have a network in the Bay Area. So our first hire was an old roommate of mine who was in Chicago. Then we hired an engineer that I worked with back in Columbia, Missouri. You know, team of five, team of six by that point in time, spread across three or four different cities. We felt like one... The company was still growing. Customer accounts were still growing. Revenue was still growing. Features were getting shipped regularly. Product was improving. Like All the things that you wanted were still happening. So we're like, well, why don't we just be a distributed team? Like There was other examples of companies doing it that way at the time. And we felt like all the downsides you would hear people talk about didn't seem to apply to us for whatever reason. So we just said, well, let's just keep doing it this way. And, you know, now today we're 250 people doing it that way and still being successful. And it's become way more common in 2019 than it was in 2012. 2012, you get weird looks and glances. People think you're crazy. Now, 2019, people seem to think that, you know, it was a stroke of genius to do it this way. But in our situation, it was just sort of a product of our circumstances.
0: Yeah. And obviously there's you know a lot more technology and tooling, including Zapier, mm-hmm. to help make remote teams more natural and easier to run, even for those who don't have experience working in that way, which is great to see.
1: Totally. Yeah. Zoom, Slack, those are all products that have started after Zapier. So you know, we've gotten to take advantage of improvements
0: in the tooling as we've grown as well, too as you reflect back to your pre-zapier days maybe leading up to the decision to start the side project and and eventually go all in if you're giving advice to that younger wade you know what is something that you know you believe deeply today but you almost certainly wouldn't have listened to you know I guess before starting the company
1: yeah you know i think i wish i would have just been more willing to just try stuff You know, I think school was always pretty easy for me. So I just kind of coasted through and, you know, didn't have a lot of academic pursuits. I was just kind of content to like do well in school and didn't sort of pursue a lot of things outside of that. It took the 2008 sort of financial crisis hitting and going out to try and, you know, get jobs and internships at that time and realizing that like, wow, there's not a lot of people hiring. And you know, being academically smart, book smart is not going to be enough. Like I need to have real experience. I need to have things that I'm interested in. And, you know, that's when I started playing around with the internet a lot more trying to figure out like, Hey, what is this thing? A lot of folks seem to be having some success playing around with new business models, new types of software, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I learned SEO, I learned email marketing, I learned, product management, I learned how to do user research, I learned how to do a whole bunch of different things at a small little company and little side projects. And all that just sort of experimentation that play is where some of the best learning of my career has come from. It's not been in sort of traditional academic environments. It's been out of just sort of raw curiosity. And so I think if I could go back, I would just, you know, tell the younger version of me, like, try more stuff.
0: You know, one there's obviously the observation of kind of classically learning styles. As a fellow young person who was risen through school in the Midwest, growing up, the level of exposure that you get, you know, is not really that high unless you decide to take it on yourself. And I think all of us that are Zapier users are pretty happy you have. So that was a great call. As you think back, what's the most unusual job you've ever had?
1: So I grew up playing saxophone. It was like my one sort of outside school interest and was taking a bunch of saxophone lessons at the time. And when I was in ninth grade, my teacher had a saxophone quartet that played routinely at the governor's mansion in Jeff City. And their fourth member moved. They like left Jeff City and went somewhere else. And so they were down a member for this upcoming gig. And for whatever reason, they thought, maybe let's give this ninth grader a whirl. Let's give him a try and see if he can do this. And so I remember I was a small, small kid. So probably walked in like all of four foot 10 or something into practice and was like, okay, super nervous, super shy, super quiet. And just tried to like, you know, play all their music, play all their songs. And I must have done well enough because they said, Hey, why don't you come out and play at the governor's mansion? And I remember That experience was incredible because I played two hours and I got paid $50, which is a ninth grader. I was like, holy cow, I'm rich. I just got paid $25 an hour. And then on top of that, I got a free meal from the governor's mansion. The meals were excellent. Excellent. And they were all served by convicts. That was the other thing. So the staff for the governor's mansion is sort of convicts that are like getting ready to go out on parole and things like that for good behavior. So you got to interact with all these, you know, interesting people who had very different experiences than my own. And so that was probably my most unusual job, which then that summer, I actually got my first W-2 job, which was a more traditional thing as a lifeguard. And I remember, you know, I'd work a seven hour day and make something like 48 bucks, you know, have to pay for concessions myself. And so I remember thinking after ninth grade, I was like, this is it. I'm going to be a professional musician. That's where the money's at.
0: Boom. Did you end up playing more than once or was that a one-time experience?
1: So we basically got to play until the governor's term limits and a new governor came in because the new governor, I guess, didn't like saxophone quartets. So (laughs) we got the boot, you know, politics right there in motion.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then I just have to ask, I don't know if you know this, I played saxophone growing up too. Were you alto, tenor, baritone? Like, What was your instrument of choice?
1: So I started on alto and played a lot of alto throughout high school. But then in college, I switched over and started playing tenor a lot, lot more.
0: Yeah, it's got great range. That's awesome. It's funny. Mine happened at a similar age. I was 14. I was obsessed with animals growing up. Until I was about 16 or 17, I thought I was going to be a herpetologist, somebody who just studied reptiles. So very different than some of what I do today. But as part of that, the first jobs I had were, you know, taking care of people's pets in the neighborhood, and and I'm making some pocket money as a younger kid. But I remember I decided I really wanted to try something a little bit more exotic, and basically stood outside of the Bronx Zoo in New York City, <laughs> where my dad lived, where I was spending summers and vacations on long weekends. Like early in the morning, when there were keepers, you know, coming in, just talking to them and trying to see if there was something they would have me do. And you know, after a couple mornings of this, one of them finally caved, I guess, and gave me a job taking care of a blind camel and a bunch of different <laughs> animals. And so, my most unusual job was as fifteen the Bronx Zoo shoveling wallaby dung. It was wild. There's definitely one morning where one of my much older, better paid colleagues left the back door open to the wallaby enclosure, and so they got out like right before the zoo opened. We're just running around. You know, they look small and furry and cute, but I'll tell you, they are fast and strong. <laughs> trying to put them back. That's definitely, I think, going to be my most unusual job for the rest of my life.
1: No kidding. That's awesome.
0: (laughs) Well, look, Wade, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Build today. It was wonderful to hear a little bit about your story, about the journey at Zapier, and really the design principles that you've used to build the business and build the product that you have.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mackie. This was fun.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Build on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time.